Hi, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy to see all you guys here. Um, tonight, I'm going to go through the first half of um, Vision for You, the chapter. And um, so we're going to start right in um, page 151. Um, for most normal folks, drinking means conviviality, companionship, and colorful imagination. It means release from care, boredom, and worry. It is joyous intimacy with friends and a feeling that life is good, but not so with us in those last days of heavy drinking. The old pleasures were gone. They were but distant memories and never could we recapture the great moments of the past. Okay, so first of all, right away it says for most normal folks. And I think it's really important, I'm not normal. Like that is a clear step one, understanding that we are not like normal men. Um, normal people, you know, by the way, they don't just eat for nutrition. Normal people eat for fun, they eat for intimacy, they eat from release from boredom, from worry and care. You know, I've heard a lot of people come in and say, um, my problem is I'm an emotional eater. Well, normal people are also emotional eaters. That you might be an emotional eater, but that's not the crux of this problem. Um, you know, normal folks can also eat when they're restless, when they're irritable and discontent. In fact, many of them do, right? Um, I think, you know, just about every girl or woman who's broken up with a boy or had a, someone hurt their heart goes out for ice cream. Like it's a very typical, I need ice cream. You know, my heart's broken. I need ice cream. Um, that does not make me a compulsive overeater, right? You know, men, you know, typically, I know this is very stereotypical, but like, you know, men get upset. They go out and get drunk. I know women do too, but, you know, so those, those are behaviors that a lot of normal people do. They might not be healthy behaviors, but normal people can do it. Um, you know, and what I came to really understand and discover is that part of my step one realization is that I can no longer treat food like normal people do. I, it can't be an event for me. It can't be what I use to soothe a broken heart, or to ease my anxieties and my worries. Um, I can't engage in recreational eating. That's really what this says, that eating for recreational purposes, not for me. Yet I can go, here's the good news. I can go wherever normal people go though. You know, remember when we studied that, you know, the chapter working with others, it tells us this. On page 101, I'm gonna flip for a minute that it tells us we can go where other people go because our rule is not to avoid a place where there's drinking if we have a legitimate reason for being there. And then it goes on to further explain what is a legitimate reason. And it says, you'll note we've made important qualification. Therefore, ask yourself on each occasion, have I any good social business or personal reason for going to this place. So I can go to these places for those reasons, 
Or am I expecting to steal a little vicarious pleasure from the atmosphere of such places? Now, that's not what I should be going there for, to steal pleasure. That's, that um, is not for someone like me to steal pleasure. I'm actually supposed to bring pleasure, not take pleasure. You know, and it says, if you answer these questions satisfactorily, you will need to have no apprehension. Go or stay away, whichever seems best, but be sure that you are on solid spiritual ground before you start and that your motive in going is thoroughly good. Do not think of what you will get out of the occasion. Think of what you can bring to it. But if you're shaky, you would better work with another alcoholic instead. Okay, so then what's different about me at these social gatherings? If I'm told I should be able to go there, how does that, how is that different from other people? Well, you know, my experience is that normal people can hang around the dinner table. They can casually eat. They can put a little on their plate, you know, chat, 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 take a few bites, take a little more, talk, 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 right? And they can eat spontaneously. You know, like I've been at cocktail parties and happy hours and other ways that normal people socialize with food and they put a little bit on their plate and they talk, right? And um, from, for them, the food is almost the background music, right? It's like just a little bit of the background. They're having great conversations. They have a few bites and um, they still hear the conversations around them. They eat to enhance the gathering. But when I engaged in casual eating, that background music of the food gets so loud that it's the only thing I can hear. And I cannot attend to the conversations of the people around me. And I had that experience in holding on by the skin of my teeth, abstinence, right? And I've had that experience in the food that my mind was locked in on what was around me. All I heard was the chatter in my brain about the food. Should I, shouldn't I? Am I taking too much? Did I take enough? Are other people watching what I'm eating, right? All this self-centered thinking in, in, in these social gatherings. So yeah, it was a sad realization that eating socially you know, things for me, like popcorn at the movies, right? That was social eating for me. It wasn't nutritional eating. Spontaneous eating, like making a last minute decision, I'm going to have this, you know, without any commitment, without any, you know, having a food plan. Um, you know, an ice cream cone at the neighborhood stand, like just making these snap in the moment decisions. It was sad at, at one point that those things were things I could no longer do. And here's, here's the truth. I could no longer do them, not because some sponsor told me I couldn't, but I couldn't do them and I still can't because I've conceded to my innermost self that there was something antisocial about my eating, that there was something that was wrong with that for me and the disease tries to convince me, and I think a lot of people have had this experience, by appealing to a sense of nostalgia. It goes right for that sense of, of belonging, you know, the 
my human desire to feel connection to my culture, right? So you're at a holiday thing and I want to feel connected to my people, my culture. So it seems reasonable to eat something. You know, I want to feel connected to my family, my friends, but my recovery has informed me that I cannot eat to feel connection. That is not how I connect to other people. And for me, eating is antisocial. It becomes an antisocial activity. I can't use food for connection and intimacy. I actually disconnect. If I'm eating in those ways that I described, I disconnect and I can't feel close with the people near me. And, you know, in fact, I remember going out to dinner, a very like clear example of this was I have a very dear friend who was experiencing the breakup of her marriage. I'll never forget that we went out to dinner together and I vaguely, here's what I vaguely recall, that she was crying. I kind of remember her crying at the table and telling me something, I don't even remember the details about what was going on in her marriage. But what happened for me was my mind locked in on the bread basket on the table. And that was the only thing I heard was the bread. It was like speaking to me. And for me, I took a bite because I couldn't battle the should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I. I didn't belong in a restaurant with her. I could have connected with her anywhere else. I could have gone to the park with her. But we went to a restaurant and I was not in fit spiritual condition. So I couldn't hear her. I just heard the bread and I took a bite. And the next thing I thought was, this is horrible. The next thing I thought was, ooh, she's really upset. She's probably gonna want dessert. I mean, I, when I think about this now, I think that is the height of selfishness. That I really didn't care that she was heartbroken. I almost rejoiced in it because this, this disease inside of me just wanted the food more than the friendship. You know, and so I think about that now and I'm a, you know, I was a decent person. I love this girl. She's a dear friend of mine. But when food is your master, it is, it is a cruel master and it shoves everything else way to the back burner. And it tells you it's the only thing that you're concerned about. So then how do I connect? What do we do now? That's really what this chapter is about. What is to become of us? What are we supposed to do? I think that would be a great name for this chapter. What is to become of me? And what do I do now? Page 152 now, the, second, the first paragraph says, yes, I'm willing. But am I to be consigned to a life where I shall be stupid, boring, and glum like some righteous people I see? I know I must get along without liquor, but how can I? Have you a sufficient substitute? So I, I did think originally that life without food and alcohol for me, because I, I don't drink either. I thought life was really gonna be dull, boring. I thought I'd be stupid and boring and glum without my stuff, my stuff, you know? Then I was worried about how am I gonna fit in with all the other like, I would say like the, all the other cool New York suburban moms, right? That would get together with, with white, you know, with their wine and their chips and their salsa. And 
I didn't know where I was going to fit in anymore. And I was afraid of living without the food because I didn't have a sufficient substitute yet. But I was willing to do anything to get released. For me, at the height of my illness, my, I ate my, my gums bled. And I just wanted relief from that. I couldn't stand it anymore. And I was also living in an obese body. I was over 300 pounds. And I just couldn't stand living that way anymore either. And what happened was I worked the steps and I found the substitute was a spiritual awakening. And it is far better, much better. And only an addict, I would say, in the throes of the food believes that they're more exciting when they're eating, right? Um, how exciting was life when I was lying on the couch or sitting in my car, eating alone, right? In a parking lot, you know? And what becomes my substitute? Will I get a substitute? Do we get a substitute? Or will there forever be an empty hole? Right? And those are the worries that we have. And page 152, the second paragraph says, yeah, there's a substitute. And it is vastly more than that. Bigger, better. It's not just a substitute. It is a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. There you'll find release from care, boredom, and worry. Life will mean something at last. So we absolutely get something way superior to just a substitute. Substitute is a placeholder. It's something that like merely sort of takes, you know, an, an inadequate spot of something else. And if I look, I looked at the word substitute, I thought about it and it's, it's something that serves in place of something else, like holds its place. And, you know, and interestingly enough, they talk about um, in psychology, which I know this is not a psychological program, but you hear about substitutes, people substituting one thing for another. And substitutes are things that become the object of love when the real thing is being deprived, right? So when the real thing is being deprived, we substitute something in and then we love it. We love it and we focus on it. And I actually think when I read this, no, the fellowship and the connection with God wasn't the substitute. It was the food. The food was the substitute. It was an inadequate substitute. Um, and it, you know, it was a sorry one in comparison to feeling the love of God. And for humans, an extra bite of food seems ridiculous. Um, and what we get now is a life that means something. We get a true purpose. And we get a mission, which is why we say, like, you know, we believe that God launches search and rescue missions for addicts like us. And then having been recovered, getting recovered means what is the vision for us? What's the vision for me? What's the vision for you? Join on the rescue mission. Get in there and help in the rescuing. We really, we say that we become agents of God. We're out there, you know trying to do God's work as best we can. Um, you know, so when I first came to Overeaters Anonymous, it was not because I was bored and it wasn't because I was worried or I lacked imagination. I didn't think it was because I lacked imagination. I didn't think my life was lacking meaning or purpose. I didn't think I had an unmanageable problem. I really didn't. I didn't think I had much of a problem outside of food. I actually came at first for a couple of simple reasons. I was fat, 
And I was unhappy about that, right? I didn't like my body and I didn't like how I felt. Um, and I knew that I needed to do something. See, really what brought me here was I knew I needed to do something. And I even thought I knew what I needed to do. And yet I couldn't do it. I was powerless. I knew I couldn't eat certain foods. I knew that from a very young age. And yet I knew exactly what I needed to do and I didn't have the power to do it. And that's what kind of brought me here. Um, I knew that the food was causing me a lot of misery. I knew inside certain foods did something to me that didn't seem to do to other people the same thing. And I thought that if OA could give me some more willpower, you guys were giving me more strength and help me shed some extra weight, then I would be fine. I didn't need anything else, right? Little more willpower, little more determination and some weight loss. And I truly didn't think it was a lack of living satisfactorily, you know, that was my problem. And I remember putting down the food and I did feel lonely and unsure how I was gonna go away on vacation or take family camping trips, you know, because for me, vacations always meant huge meals out. And we camped a lot as a family and camping meant marshmallows and eating late at night around the campfire. It just meant eating. It always meant eating. Everything I did, because food was my master, always seemed like it was centered around eating. And here's what happened. Um, I didn't know that I was gonna enjoy any of those things if food was not a part of them. You know, I was worried, who am I gonna be now? And I discovered, here's what I discovered. Life is amazingly more enjoyable when food is not your master, when food is not calling the shots. I found out who I was gonna be. I found out I was gonna be useful. I found out that I was going to actually crave giving rather than taking, that that actually happened, that I did not give because I was afraid that I was gonna go back to the food, but I began to be of a more giving nature because my heart was changed inside. And that's what I got. And that's much better substitute than the food, right? Far superior. Page 153, first paragraph says, how can they rise out of such misery, bad repute and hopelessness? The practical answer is that since these things have happened among us, they can happen with you. So you might be sitting there wondering, okay, so how is it now that you want to do that and social eating does not interest you? Is that really possible? And my answer to you is, if it happened to me, it can happen with you. Should you wish them above all else and be willing to make use of our experience, of all of our experience, we are sure they will come. The age of miracles is still with us. Our own recovery proves that. I love that line. The age of miracles is still with us, like right here and now. And so I do usually share, you know, oftentimes when there's a lot of new people around, um, I take out my pictures. I show my pictures because I'm lucky. I've had a visible, physical transformation. And I, and I say it's lucky because it gives a little credibility 
to my words. Usually when I share my photos, what happens is people look at them and oftentimes they kind of lean in a little bit because they're like, wait a second, this might work. You know, this, this, this seems like it could work. So I am a walking, breathing miracle. I know it. I truly, beyond physical transformation, I feel this deep down in my heart. I feel my heart has been rewired for sure. Um, and, and guess what? It's available to anyone. But here we're told two conditions. You've got two conditions. One, you've got to wish it above all else. Meaning you have to want this and put it at the front of your life. This has to be at the front of your life. Not just another size body at the front of your life, but a rewiring of your heart, a transformation, a change in who you are has to be what you want more than anything. Um, I could not fit recovery into my life. Every time I tried to look at my life as a perfect you know, model, as it was exactly as it was, and I was gonna squeeze recovery in, the little gaps that I would leave over, that didn't work. If I wish this above all else, this means that I am ready and willing to rebuild my life and actually not me rebuild my life, have God rebuild my life, have it all new, take everything that I think is super important, right? I have to want this way of life more than I want a number on the scale, more than I want to be a certain size pants. I had to want it more than I wanted a certain food. I had to want it more than I wanted the respect of my friends and colleagues and to feel, you know, a sense of belonging at, at wine tastings, whatever it was, this I had to want more than anything. I had to build my life around recovery. Um, more than being, you know, and I would say, you know, think about Bill. What did he find out? He had to want this more than being the head of vast enterprises. Whenever I want any kind of success, outward visible success, more than I want a relationship with God, I am putting the heart cart before the horse, right? And it will fail. That's what I found, it will fail. So I have to want this relationship with God, which is really what we're after more than anything else. And here's the second thing. You have to use the experience of others. What does that mean? It means you have to follow directions and the examples. So if you are looking to get recovered and you have asked someone who you see has what you want and you tell that person, I'm willing to do what you do because I want what you have and you follow their directions and you follow their examples. And I, you know, I would notice that my, you know, my sponsor would tell you that I never say no to anything she says to me. Why? Why? She's not my master. She is not my God. I don't worship her, but I value what I see God has done with her. I look at her and I, and she is an example for me of someone who walks this path. And so I don't, 
refuse what she suggests um, because I believe I want what she has and nothing she's asked me to do has been in, you know, um, in conflict with the spiritual principles. They're all in agreement with the spiritual principles and therefore I do them, you know? And so I say, this is why we don't water down our course of action. We just water it down. I cannot make the directions easy and I cannot cut the corners because then I would be setting someone up to fail, right? If, if it's the actions I take, if it's the corners that I don't cut, why would I ask someone else to not take those actions and to cut those corners? You know, what I say is this recovery that I've been given, freedom from the food and from my broken thinking, relieved of obesity. I've let go of more than 160 pounds. I've lived in a healthy body with a pretty healthy mind for years now. You know, if a friend calls me to talk about an issue that they're having, I can hear them, even if there's bread on the table, right? Even if there's a cake on the table, it doesn't matter what's on the table. Food doesn't own me anymore. I go camping with my family. I enjoy, you know, when we go away, I, I like to sing around the campfire. I like to, to be with the people I'm with. You know, I go in a recovered state now, I go to water parks. Um, I have more energy and enthusiasm at 53 years of age than I've ever had, you know, and I've experienced a miracle. And a miracle is an act of God. And that this, this is what this is all about. That these 12 steps are a set of directions. They're like a step-by-step -step recipe, right? In a sense to create a miracle. We like cook up a miracle here. We create a miracle. And, and I'd say, you know, what is it? It's an invitation to God to enter our lives and change us entirely. That's what the steps are. When I take the steps, I say to God, come on in. I've got a home right here in my heart and I want you to fill it, right? Um, it's a complete willingness to transform. And I've, by the way, I've witnessed this, yes, in my own life but I have witnessed this happening in the lives of so many others. We, you can see it. I mean, that's one of the beauties of Zoom meetings. You can visibly see people changing like week after week after week. You see the light come on and you see people change. Um, you know, and in fact, helping others to experience this miracle, this is now our mission. This is the vision, a vision for you is a direction for how to live your life now, which is we live the rest of our lives helping others to get well. And, um, you know, so the, I'm gonna um, stop in a moment because I know we're almost at the halfway point, but I do, I do wanna talk about um, at the bottom of page 153 to the bottom of page 154. And if you read that, if you read it in the book, it says, it talks about years ago, 
And I know Janet's going to pick up here the next time as well, but I'm going to, I'm going to end with it as well. Um, years ago in 1935, one of our number made a journey to a certain Western city from a business standpoint, his trip came off badly. So by the way, our vision for you does not mean everything in your life is going to go smooth and perfect. We have many, many bumps, right? But we have a way of surviving those bumps. And here we go. This is Bill. He, is, he was not successful in his enterprise. If it had been successful, everything might have been different, which also tells me God has beautiful plans. And I could never fathom what his plans are. I have had so many human plans that had they come to fruition, everything else would have turned out a mess, but God knew what God was doing. And here's an example of it. His business venture ended in a lawsuit and he was really upset. There was hard feeling and controversy. He was bitterly discouraged. He the found colors, himself the blue. in, no, usually he found himself, someone's unmutable. He found himself, um, you know, alone and broke. And uh, he wanted to talk to someone. He was lonely. And what he did, he, he was walking in a hotel lobby wondering how his bill is gonna get paid. And at one end of the room stood a glass covered directory of local churches. Down the lobby, a door opened into an attractive bar. He could see the gay crowd inside. In there, he could find companionship and release. Remember, normal people find companionship and release in bars and in restaurants. If I am looking to go to a restaurant in the bar, because I'm hoping to feel companionship, right, and release, I might be in trouble. And what happened? He realized, of course, he couldn't drink. But then he thought, why not sit hopefully at a table, a bottle of ginger ale beforehand? After all, he had not been sober six, he had been sober six months now. Perhaps he could handle, say, three drinks and no more. Fear gripped him. He was on thin ice. And again, it was the old insidious insanity, that first drink. And with a shiver, what did he do? He turned away and walked down the lobby to the church directory. Music and gay chatter still floated to him from the bar. And so this is the vision for you. When we are feeling shaky and on uneven ground, un, that, I would say that's the definition of spiritually unfit. That is a time when we do not walk in and hang out in bakeries and restaurants and bars, right? And sweet shop and Dunkin' whatever it is. And I'll just share quickly, I had this experience myself years ago. I was away on a family trip and something happened with my daughter. She was 16 at the time and she gave us some difficulty and I was beside myself. I was full of anger and anxiety and worry and all those heavily normal human functions. And my kids and my husband wanted to stop off at an ice cream spot. And we're walking up there and in my brain came clear as day, ice cream sandwich. 
Like it was in my brain so much. So it almost felt, um, it almost felt like pornographic. Like I could picture it. It felt, it, I knew I was in trouble. I could picture it. I could picture the unwrapping of it like way too. And I hadn't had that in years. I, I mean, it was very, very detailed, like fantasy for me of, of, of ice cream. And what did I do? I did not accompany my family to the, to the canteen shop at the campground. I, I said, I got You know what? I got to call someone. And I, and I took a walk with my phone, you know, and, and thank you, God, actually, um, I reached someone. Um, and I was, you know, recoiled. That's what it means to recall. So, you know, that's the vision for us. Does it mean, now I have to say that experience, I really has not been repeated. I really have not had those experiences again. And um, sanity returns. And what do we do? We thank God when sanity returns. That's what it means to recoil. So this is our vision. When life gets shaky, when things get rough for us, we do not place ourselves in dangerous positions, right? What we do is we get busy helping other people. That's the solution. That is what the vision is for us. You know, and the good news here is Bill did that and he was led to Dr. Bob right? And, and, and history, as we know it, has been, you know, rewritten. Um, and so I would say, like, the vision for us, is that a substitute? Then better than sitting and having a, a glass of ginger ale, you know, maybe it would have led him to a drink, maybe it wouldn't have. What would that substitute have looked like? You know, to me, this is a far greater substitute. Um, and, um, you know, I, with that, I'm going to